and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by GP Online's deputy editor, Nick Bostock, and our senior news reporter, Kimberly Hackett, to talk about the latest news affecting primary care. Coming up, we'll be talking about international medical graduate or IMG GPs and how problems relating to visas could be driving them out of the NHS. We're talking about the challenges locum GPs in England are currently facing finding work and how this is affecting the rates of pay they're receiving. And we're looking at appointment data and patient data for the whole of 2023 and how general practice has fared over those 12 months. This week's good news story is about how a practice has used patient feedback and effective communication about the work they're doing to deliver a massive fall in complaints. That's all to come on this week's Talking General Practice. First up, let's talk about International Medical Graduate or IMG GPs. Nick, we published details of a freedom of information request GP Online carried out this week, looking at the number of practices in the country that are skilled worker visa sponsors. Firstly, why did we decide to look at that issue and what did the FOI actually find? We wanted to look at this because more than half of doctors currently going through GP training in the UK are international medical graduates basically overseas doctors who obtained their medical degree outside the UK. Most of these doctors will need a visa to work in the UK after they qualify as GPs. And to obtain a visa, you need an employer who is a registered visa sponsor. I'll explain a bit of the background first and then come on to what our Freedom of Information investigation actually found. There's a sort of loophole around visas that affects general practice in quite a unique way compared with other medical specialties. Under UK immigration rules, someone living and working in the UK on a visa can apply after five years for indefinite leave to remain, which basically means they have the right to live, work and study in the UK for as long as they like. Um, So when it comes to the medical profession, most specialty training programmes are five years long. Um, which means that international medical graduates training in most medical specialties can apply for indefinite leave to remain as soon as they qualify. So they no longer need a visa to work in the UK. But GP specialty training only lasts three years. So an IMG doctor who comes to the UK and completes GP training can't apply for settled status straight away and still needs a visa to join the NHS workforce. And that means that at a time when this huge proportion of doctors coming through GP training are likely to need visas to work in the NHS, it really matters whether their likely employers, GP practices, are registered visa sponsors. And this is where the Freedom of Information request comes in. Both the government and NHS England have said that they want to see more practices become visa sponsors, but they've never been able to say how many GP practices actually have that status currently. So we went to integrated care boards across England to find out more. Uh, Kimberly and I sent emails to all 42 integrated care boards. And what we found out is that in areas where they were able to provide a figure, only 26% of practices were sponsors on average. So our results confirm that the vast majority of practices are not visa sponsors. And therefore, as things stand, they can't actually employ half of the doctors coming through GP training. One GP I spoke to who has experience in this area said they believe that the 26% figure we found was likely higher than the real national average. 
And to be clear, there's a big gap in our data because 17 ICBs, 40% of them said they couldn't provide any information on how many of their practices actually are visa sponsors. On a more positive note, we also found that more than half of ICBs said they were trying to increase numbers of visa sponsor practices and a third mentioned providing financial support for practices on this too. So there seem to be active efforts underway to improve the situation. But again, as things stand, very few practices are visa sponsors, especially considering the proportion of doctors coming through training who who are going to need visas to join the NHS workforce. Yeah, so why aren't practices becoming visa sponsors? There are several factors that come into it, I think. BMA guidance on applying says it's not a complex process, but there's definitely a perception that it is. The long application form is off-putting. It's also just another layer of bureaucracy that practices don't really want to get involved with. And there's also a cost attached to becoming a visa sponsor, something like £500 for an average-sized practice and more like £1,500 for a large practice. Then there's the delay involved for a, a practice that isn't already a visa sponsor and is looking to fill a vacancy. If two candidates come forward and one doesn't need a visa and the other does, it may be tempting to go with the visa-free option. It's meant to take around eight weeks to register as a visa sponsor, but deadlines with official processes can slip. And then there's the application for the individual GP's visa, which can also take time. So all of these factors are quite likely having an impact on total numbers. What's the upshot of all this? What does the lack of visa sponsoring practices mean in practice for the NHS? Well, the impact is potentially absolutely huge. GP training places have expanded enormously in recent years. Around 4,000 doctors enter GP training in England each year now, compared with about 2,600 a decade ago. So it's a big increase. As that expansion has happened, there's been a really big increase in the proportion of trainees who are international medical graduates. It used to be less than a quarter, but now, as I mentioned at the start, more than half of doctors in GP training in the UK are international medical graduates. So the reason the government stepped up GP training places in the first place, the reason it did it so rapidly, is because we have a shrinking GP workforce. There were about 1,800 fewer fully qualified GPs in England at the end of 2023 than there were at the end of 2016. And the government promised during the last general election that it would deliver 6,000 more GPs. But Dr Margaret Ikpo, who's um, an RCGP vice chair, she's a GP trainer, said nine out of ten of a group of GP registrars she'd been working with were planning to move abroad to start their careers. And that, that number isn't completely out of whack with things I've heard from other GP trainers. Unless we do a better job of encouraging these doctors to stay and work in the NHS... The expansion of GP training places will have been, in her words, meaningless for general practice and for patients. A 2022 report from the RCGP said half of IMG GP registrars struggled with the visa process. 30% were considering not working as an NHS GP and 17% were considering leaving the UK entirely. So that's the problem that needs to be fixed. Let's bring you in here now, Kimberly, because you've actually been speaking to IMG GP trainees about the impact the issues around visas is having on them personally. What did people tell you about how this is all affecting them? Yeah, so when I spoke with the interviewees, the emotional impact really came out. It came across as though they felt they were being othered in some way. And it's understandable considering UK GPs have more options, such as locuming, despite the fact they all went through the same training. 
Dr. Akram Hussein, who is the RCGP National AIT Chair, told me he really wants to stay in the UK and is proud of his investment in the NHS, but the current visa setup makes him feel unsupported, demotivated and discouraged by the government. It was a similar picture painted by the other doctors I interviewed. One described the UK's visa process as taxing and said it caused them anxiety, and another said it made them feel different. And a GP from India told me that when his wife passed her training, none of the practices hiring within 15 minutes of where they lived would be a sponsor. It meant she had to travel up to an hour every day to a practice that was a visa sponsor. Some of the things that came out from those interviews you did is that some of these people are quite seriously considering moving away from the UK, aren't they? Yeah, they really are. Now, it's important to highlight that everyone I interviewed wanted to remain in the UK as they have settled here and their reason for thinking about leaving is the UK's visa process. You've got countries like Canada and Australia that are making it really easy for international medical graduates to move there. Dr Hussein told me that GPs are offered permanent residency before they even land in the country and recruiters make it so easy for GPs because they help with everything such as visa documentation and the relocation procedure. He described it as the other countries very much make IMGs feel wanted and if IMGs don't find a sponsor practice here, they have already moved to another country once so they are capable of doing it again. And while it doesn't seem that the UK government will change its stance on the visa issue anytime soon, Leeds GP trainer Dr Philip Shu did present an option that would make being a visa sponsor appealing to practices. He told me that his practice has less of a recruitment issue because it is a sponsor practice and therefore has more people applying to work there. Whereas he believes that practices that don't sponsor have fewer applications. That's a really good point, isn't it? That's a, a real reason, a potentially incentive for practices to, to take on the role as visa sponsors. But Nick, you know, what's the solution to all of this? It's absolutely ridiculous that the NHS is effectively paying thousands of pounds to train these doctors to become GPs. And then all of these issues around visas and finding somewhere to work are effectively driving many of them away from the NHS. Yeah, as you said, it's expensive to train GPs. It costs the government £50,000 a year to train a GP. So it's £150,000 per doctor across a three-year course. If we fail to retain thousands of doctors and they move to Canada or Australia or elsewhere where governments and health services are encouraging them to come, hundreds of millions of pounds would have been invested in a workforce that never actually works in the NHS. The RCGP and the BMA have called for doctors to receive indefinite leave to remain as soon as they qualify as GPs. And the House of Commons Health Select Committee has also recommended the same thing a couple of years ago. But that option has been rejected by the government. Um, It has extended visas for newly qualified GPs by four months. And I'm told doctors affected are grateful for that. But the sense is that it just doesn't go far enough to guarantee that the majority of these doctors will stay in the NHS and join the NHS GP workforce especially at a time when they're affected, like all other GPs, by pressures around cost of living and general underfunding of general practice. In the absence of indefinite leave to remain for all newly qualified GPs, though, the next best thing would be for all practices to become visa sponsors so that they're all able to employ GPs who need visas. As I mentioned, there are plenty of ICBs who say they're helping practices to do this, and even providing financial support. So that's a start, but it needs to happen faster. 
There have also been calls for more support for international medical graduates as they come through training and on completion to help them find roles in the NHS. Another solution that could be explored more is the idea of at-scale sponsorship within some regions. So some ICPs told us they weren't actually looking to increase the number of individual practices that a visa sponsors, but they're instead using organisations like GP federations to act as visa sponsors across multiple practices in an area, kind of umbrella sponsorship arrangement. And that sort of innovation to take the pressure off of individual practices is something that I'm sure many GPs would welcome. Yeah, I'm sure they would. We've actually produced an article on how practices can become a skilled worker visa sponsor on GP Online and what they have to do once they are a sponsor. It's based on a really useful guide the BMA put out a couple of years ago and some advice from immigration legal specialists. And it has links to lots of other useful resources. So we'll put a link to that article in the description for this episode. This is a quick reminder that MIMS Learning Live Digital starts on the 11th of March. MIMS Learning is our sister website and education platform which provides hundreds of online learning modules for GPs, nurses and other healthcare professionals. Between the 11th and 14th of March, MIMS Learning Live Digital will provide four evenings of free clinical webinars featuring expert speakers and live Q&As. Some of the topics being covered include elderly care, early cancer diagnosis and cardiology. To find out more and register for your free place, go to mimslearninglive.com. Something else we've been looking at on GP Online over the past week is the experience locum GPs have had with finding work and the levels of pay they're getting for that work. Emma, this is something you've been working on and it relates to our annual survey of locum GPs, doesn't it? Yeah, so we undertake a survey of locum GPs every year to find out how much they charge. And we use this data for our locum rates tables on our sister website, GP Business. Those tables basically show the average amount that locum GPs charge practices in different parts of the country for a full day, an hour and half a day. The information we produce covers quite big areas. So they are the large NHS England regions, along with Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. And as well as the average rates charged, we also show the highest and lowest rates charged by locum GPs in each of those areas. You know, as I say, we've been doing this for a number of years now. I mean, we've got data on GP business going back to 2016, but we've actually been doing this survey or some version of it for a lot, lot longer than that. And as well as asking locum GPs about how much they charge every year, we also ask them specifically about whether they have increased, decreased or kept their rates the same and the reasons they've done that. And we also ask them every year about whether demand for their services has gone up or down over the past year. So it's a really good way for us to see some of the issues facing locum GPs when they're looking for work. And the figures we get about the rates locums charge actually tell us a lot about some of those issues as well. Because we've been doing this for a long time, we've got a real sense about trends on all of those things. So what did the survey actually find about locum GPs' experience of, of getting work? So we've talked on the podcast before, haven't we, about, you know, the financial pressure practices are facing and how that and the additional roles reimbursement scheme, the ARRS, is affecting the work that's available for sessional GPs. So that's both locum GPs and salaried GPs. We know from stories that we've written based on speaking to GP leaders in various parts of the country that some locum GPs have really struggled to find work in recent months because of both of those things that I mentioned there. So the annual locum rate survey was really the perfect opportunity for us to find out a bit more about exactly what is going on. So this year, we added in some very specific questions linked to problems or issues around finding work. 
So what did we actually find? So the survey covered 533 locum GPs and it ran across the end of January and early February this year. And in England, 55% of the respondents said they'd struggled to find work in the previous 12 months. Obviously, some of those respondents will be people who started locuming within the last year. But if you look at people who were locum GPs a year ago, 81% of those GPs said demand for their services had fallen over the previous year. Only 14% said it had remained the same and only 5% said it had increased. What's interesting about that is this is such a different picture from previous years when we've done this survey. For example, last year when we did this survey at the start of 2023, in response to that question, over half of locum GPs said that demand for their services was higher than it was the year before. To be honest, this is the first time I can remember that more locum GPs have said that the work out there is falling than those who've said it's actually rising. So that's pretty significant. I think one of the things that's really worth mentioning is very interesting is that what's going on in England is not the same as what's happening in the other UK nations. Only 21% of the locum GPs in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland said that they had struggled to find work during the past 12 months. Although just to be clear, all isn't completely rosy in those countries either because almost half of locums in the other three countries said employment opportunities in their local area had decreased in the past year. Did GPs say why they thought it was harder to find work? Yeah, we did ask specifically about this. And so just over half of locums in England said it was because practices said they were unable to afford locums. A massive 80% said it was because practices were making use of more additional role staff and as a result reducing their use of locums. And 29% said it was because of increased competition from other locum GPs. I mean, we haven't talked about that last point much on the podcast, but anecdotally, we know that probably more GPs have chosen to work more flexibly in recent years to get a better work-life balance. So it is likely that there are more locum GPs out there, particularly in some parts of the country. And obviously, that's going to come into play as part of this as well. The other thing that came out from the poll is that these problems with finding work appear to have become really more acute since autumn last year. Quite a few GPs said that they'd really noticed things had become more tricky since the end of last summer and into autumn 2023. And all of these findings really reflect what we've been hearing from elsewhere. Kimberly, you wrote a story this week about locum GPs being forced to consider extreme steps such as moving abroad or relocating within the UK to find work. And Nick, you wrote a story last week about the BMA saying there's growing evidence that GPs are being replaced by additional roles reimbursement staff. And we also know a lot of what's driving that is the financial pressure on practices. And obviously, the ARRS roles are all fully funded. So primary care networks are given money to pay for those staff, whereas they aren't given money to pay for GPs or locum GPs. And that's what is really worrying the BMA and lots of locum GPs as well, according to our poll. How's all of that affected levels of pay for locum GPs? Yeah, it has had a big impact. I'll talk about the average rates charged in a minute. But just generally speaking, the difficulties actually finding work is obviously having a big impact on locum GPs earnings. Among those GPs who said they struggled to find enough work in the past year, over half said that they'd seen a significant decrease in their earnings and another 42% had experienced a slight decrease. A number of people said they were actively applying for work outside the NHS because they were really worried about their finances. And in terms of the average rates charged, this is why we carry the survey out every year, but this is the first year for a really long time that we've seen a fall in the average rates charged by locums. So across England as a whole, the average daily rates charged by locum GPs fell by 1% compared with the same time last year, and the hourly rates fell by 1% as well. 
But in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, daily rates were up by 12% in Wales, 9% in Northern Ireland and 10% in Scotland. Just to be clear, GPs in those countries tend to report daily rates more frequently than hourly rates. So we usually only look at um, daily rates when we're looking at those three countries. Just under a quarter of the locum GPs in England said they'd cut their rates in the previous 12 months. Meanwhile, in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, a third of respondents said they'd increased their rates. So again, these results are really similar to that questions about struggling to find work. You can see the difference between England and the other three nations. And obviously, the biggest difference between England and the other countries is the ARRS. I mean, we know that practices across the UK are struggling financially. We've written stories about that in Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland in recent months, as well as England. And we also know, you know, that at times of financial pressure, practices always tend to cut the amount of locum GPs they use. And there were a significant number of locum GPs in all four countries reporting that work opportunities in their local area had fallen. But the problem does seem to be more acute in England, which has the ARS that basically funds other staff at a time when practices are really struggling financially. It's interesting hearing that so many locums have had to freeze or reduce the rates that they're charging. Given what we know about where inflation's been over the past year, obviously that means, you know, it's an even bigger cut in real terms for all those people at a time when practice staff were supposed to receive a 6% pay rise. Obviously not all of them have because practices can't necessarily afford to deliver that. But for locums to see that they're reducing their rates at a time when the cost of living is, is as high as it is, you know, it's quite a shocking finding. Before we move on, there's a quick message here about another podcast you might be interested in from our sister title, Mims Learning. Like to keep up to date with current clinical practice? The Clinical Update podcast from Mims Learning discusses a wide range of topics. Contraception, cancer, climate change, COPD and chronic kidney disease. And that's just the C's. Join us every fortnight for expert interviews and key points from Mims Learning's CPD modules presented by our editors. You can find us on podcast players or at mimslearning.co.uk. Moving on, we talk regularly about all the data that's published about general practice in England on the podcast, one of which is data about appointments. Nick, last week, NHS England published data that means we have a full picture of workload in general practice across the whole of 2023. What does that data tell us? Yeah, I guess it's probably not the full picture of workload in general practice. It's certainly of appointments and there's plenty more workload beside that this data doesn't capture. But in terms of appointments, GP practices delivered about 356 million appointments in total in 2023. So that's more than 1.4 million for every working day of the year. That total includes appointments to deliver COVID vaccinations. There are about 7 million of those. And once you strip those out... The number of standard appointments practices delivered last year is actually a new record for a calendar year in in general practice. Total appointments not including COVID jabs were up by about 6% compared with last year and by 12% compared with 2019. If you count COVID jabs, appointments in 2023 were up by about 14% compared with 2019, so pre-pandemic. In terms of appointments per working day, practices delivered more than 180,000 extra appointments in 2023 per working day than they did in 2019. So the number of appointments practices are delivering is really high. And as we've discussed before, there are fewer fully qualified GPs now than there were in 2015 or in 2019. Almost seven out of 10 appointments were delivered face to face in 2023. That's compared to about eight in 10 in 2019 before the pandemic. 
But these figures confirm that practices are delivering the vast majority of appointments in person. Practices also delivered 70% of appointments within a week of booking last year, which is up from 68% in 2019 before the pandemic. So that figure's improved. And in terms of what these figures tell us, the RCGP said they show that intense workload in general practice has become the new normal. And clearly, workload is really high. But there's another factor that the BMA highlighted recently around the proportion of appointments delivered by GPs and how that's changing. The figures show that 46.6% of appointments in general practice were delivered by GPs in 2023, down from 52% in 2019. The BMA said last week that it was concerned that this shift was evidence of a worrying new model of NHS general practice delivery emerging, one that reflects basically some of the points we've reported on recently around a model focused more on use of additional role staff, for example, and one that's contributed to those shortages of jobs for GPs that we've been talking about. Yeah, we'll put a link to the story Nick wrote about the data in the description for this episode because there's loads of useful graphs and charts in there that really show very clearly how much more work is going on in general practice at the minute um, compared with previous years. I mean, Nick, you also looked at data about the number of patients in England and there was a fairly big milestone that was breached in terms of the average size of a practice, wasn't there? Yeah, so once a month for quite a while, I've been stuck in a slightly weird ritual of downloading statistics on patients registered with GP practices and working out whether the average practice list size has finally slipped above 10,000. And it finally has. It seems like quite a significant milestone for general practice in terms of moving towards a larger scale model of delivery. A decade ago, the average practice list was only just over 7,000. But in 2024, there are about 1,700 fewer GP practices than there were in 2014, with about 9 million more patients registered at those practices. So it's a really big shift, and even more so perhaps if you think back to 2004, when the so-called new GMS contract was introduced. That's effectively the first version of the current GP contract. And at that time, there were 5,891 patients per GP practice on average. We know there's been a fairly steady trend of practices getting larger and larger in recent years. This is mainly because many of them need to be bigger in order to be financially viable, isn't it? What kind of impact is this move to fewer but bigger practices having? The change in in practice numbers has been driven by closures and mergers of practices, as well as growing numbers of patients, I've just mentioned. And the practices closing or merging are predominantly smaller ones. In in 2014, 38% of GP practices in England had fewer than 5,000 patients, and that figure's now dropped to 19%. For patients, that means often having to travel further for GP appointments. It may also mean that patients are less likely to see a GP they know, although, of course, larger practices can offer continuity effectively by building teams of healthcare professionals around sections of their patient list. But closures are a big factor in this change in average list size in general practice. I think one point to mention here is that the the primary care minister, Andrea Leadsom, said recently that practice closures don't affect quality of care. I mean, in some cases that may be correct, but it often has a huge impact. For one thing, when practices close, experienced GPs often go with them. And beyond that, 
the closure of one practice can have a massive impact on others nearby that have to take on their patient list. This rapid change in the average list size across England, in part, reflects the huge amount of change and disruption that practices are having to cope with. And again, in the context of heavy workload and a shrinking workforce, that's not easy. Before we go, we've just got time for our good news story. And this week, it's something Kimberly wrote about, which was a story that showed how a practice had helped reduce patient complaints. Do you want to tell us what that practice actually did? Two years ago, the new practice business manager, Kirsten McKellar at Largs Medical Group in Ayrshire, Scotland, asked staff and patients what needed to change. The response was that appointments and communication needed improving. The main issue was that patients could only book same-day appointments and had to call the practice at 8.30am. So the practice decided to change the system so patients could book appointments up to four weeks in advance, as well as having some same-day appointments available. In addition, McKellar decided to use the practice's Facebook group to tell patients about the hidden amount of work that goes on in the surgery. This was also to help combat the mainstream media's portrayal that practices aren't working hard enough. Every month she produces an infographic showing how many phone calls the practice received, how many appointments they delivered and how many letters they had come in. Patients have since fed back that they didn't know how much work the practice was actually doing. And McKellar told me that between April 2022 and March 2023, before the changes were introduced, the practice received 50 plus verbal complaints a day about access to appointments. But the difference in the number of complaints since the changes were brought in is massive. The verbal complaints have dropped to just four between April 2023 and the present day. And it isn't only patients that are happier. Staff morale has improved too. 100% of staff told McKellar in a staff survey that the changes have improved interactions with patients. Yeah, that's a really great story, isn't it? It's really positive. It's a nice way to end this week's podcast. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening and thanks so much to Nick and Kimberly. I'll be back next week when I'm talking to Becky Baird from the King's Fund about a report the Think Tank published last week on how to make care closer to home a reality and the importance of investing more in primary and community care services. So do join me then. In the meantime, you can keep up to date with all the latest news affecting general practice on our website at gponline.com.